So, uh, guys, I'm going to speak with you this morning a little bit more informally than usual. I often, uh, most often, read sermons from a manuscript. It helps me to stay on task. Um, also helps me to stay on time. Uh, this morning, though, we're going to talk about something uh, that I would consider paramount for our generation. Uh, our culture, perhaps you couldn't say limps under the oppression of this sin, this category of sins. Maybe a better term would be embraces this category of sins. It is everywhere that we look. What I want to do today is I want to explore what the Bible has to say about sexual sin. And I want to do it in such a way that you can see my eyes and maybe see my heart. And I think see the Lord's heart through his scriptures. There's a very real chance that you are laboring and weeping under the oppression of this addiction. You'll hear things that are tough to hear this morning. But we'll also reflect on the beauty that is, is, that is in Christ for you. There's no condemnation in Christ. So, we're going to have a little bit um, more relaxed conversation about uh, this passage. I also hope that uh, you guys were able to see my message on the realm. If you weren't, that's fine. Um, uh, but we are not going to read the whole of the passage this morning because this passage is long, 2,500 and change words, which means if I read it to you, it would take up half our time. I will summarize this passage while, up oh, here we are, while experimenting with new technology. <laughs> so bear with me. Um, so, we haven't been in the book of Samuel for some time. I want to quickly review. The story of David is always doing two things. The story of David is about Jesus, and it's teaching us about Jesus in two ways, okay? The first way is that David is like the promised king of Israel. From the very beginning of the story of Scripture, we get these seeds of hope. The people of Israel are trained. Their eyes are, 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 are pushed to envision a coming kingdom, and that coming kingdom... Uh, uh, centered around a coming king who would rescue them and who would reconcile them to God. Okay, And the story of David is teaching the people of God in certain ways what that king will be like and what his kingdom will be like. Okay, But it's also doing something else. It's also teaching that David is not the promised king of Israel. Because David is who he is, because he's so powerfully by the Spirit of the Lord moved and changed the direction of the people of Israel and rallied the people to faithfulness, you might begin to believe that this was the promised king. This was the kingdom that, that, that the, the scriptures have, have whispered about all this time. The author of Samuel won't let you go there. You are forced by, uh, without hesitation, glimpsing the sin of David and the consequences of David's sin and 
and staring prolonged at the crumbling kingdom of David on the heels of his adultery, you, you are forced to see that David is not the promised king. Okay, those two things are going on at the same time. So in, in some way, we've spent now several years um, exploring how David is like the promised king. He rescues his people. He conquers their enemies. He leads them in worship and reconciles, in a way, reconciles them to their Lord. And he establishes a kingdom of peace. We got to see this unfold for, for now several years. But since then, um, this story has shifted. Okay? Now we're exploring how David primarily is not the promised king of Israel. We're, we're exploring how he broke the law and how he abandoned the covenant. And, and in that way, how he failed his people and he lost the peace of the kingdom. In all of these ways, David is, is not like Jesus, right? So as you're reading the book of Samuel, you're, you're yearning for the fulfillment of this positive vision. And you're relieved because that fulfillment looks nothing like this negative vision. Does that make sense? Okay, I just lost my connection. We go to the next slide. Uh, the rest of the book revolves around the consequences of David. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, I think I just skipped one in addition to. Okay. So the rest of the book revolves around the consequences of David's failure. And guys, I'll just be very honest. It's hard to read this. You had such hope for David, did you not? Man, when he's, when he's rallying in faith, it's moving. And you yearn for that, right? Because that's a taste of what the coming kingdom's like. Um, but also, uh, we have to see his failure, for two reasons. One, we need to be very clear how David is not like the coming king. And two, we need to take, we need to heed the scripture's warnings not to follow in David's disobedience. So that all of the last portion, almost all of the last portion of 2 Samuel is dwelling slowly on the crumbling kingdom in the wake of David's sin. And it's doing so to teach you that this is not like Jesus, and also to teach you not to go in the way of David, at least in his sin. Okay? Oh, oh. oh gosh. <laughs> Sorry. All right, I'm just going to, Mark, I'm going to tell you to change the, the slides um, when we get to there. I'm sorry, I just reset. <laughs> I'll just turn this off. Five years from now, we'll have a working uh, slide changing device. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, um, the passage we're studying today is a warning. And that warning was written for you, not merely the people of Israel. Don't make the mistake that a lot of Christians make, which is that the Old Testament was written for the people of Israel, just merely so that they would know what Jesus is like. That's a relatively recent emphasis, and it's an error. The Old Testament is a warning that we might not go in this way. This is written to keep you from sinning like David did. So the question we have to answer is, how did David sin, and how do you keep from doing the same? All right, next slide. 
We're going to talk this morning about sexual sin. We're going to answer these questions. What is it? Why does it happen? What does it do? What are its consequences? And how do we protect itself, ourselves from sexual sin? Okay? So next slide, please. A, a great place to start is in the very beginning of the Bible. Turn to Genesis 2 with me. We're going to read starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is the vision. This is the very first vision, and this should be your first referent point whenever you're asking questions about what the relationship, especially the sexual relationship between a man and a woman should look like. The only good framework for sex is marriage. That's just there. It's there from the very beginning. One man, one wife, one flesh. And you see this picture at the very end of this Story And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And they're walking daily in the garden with God. And there was peace and there was joy. And it was whole. This is the vision. Okay? Now, just one chapter later. Next slide, please. Just one chapter later, Adam and Eve rebel against God. And among the consequences of that rebellion, the marriage union is cursed. God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So all of a sudden, this, this, this relationship between man and woman, which was characterized by peace and joy and, and, uh, and, and harmony with God, is cracked from the foundations. And you see, instead of, two, instead of a man and a woman praising God alongside each other, you see they are turned in animosity against one another. And this is your first sign that the sexual relationship between man and woman is broken. All right, next slide. Within just seven generations, the marriage union has become marred beyond recognition. We often pass over Lamech. Uh, He's known for two things. He's the first person to have more than one wife. And then also he's the first person to claim to have the authority of God to curse others. That's not accidental. From Genesis 4 on until that passage we read where the heavens and the earth are replaced by our good king. From, from this moment on, polygamy, 
concubinage, prostitution, homosexuality, and sexual assault are consistently represented in the story of Scripture. Everything's broken, and it causes problems. All right, next slide. So Genesis is really interesting because Genesis carefully notes that violence and division actually follows in the wake of every violation of the one flesh union. And if if you don't believe me, just go back and read the stories. Abraham, in an act of faithlessness, he takes a second wife. He actually takes his, uh, his wife's servant to produce an offspring because momentarily he was convinced not to trust God. And what happens? They hate each other. The wives hate each other. And there's enmity between offspring. Actually, between offspring for generation upon generation upon generation. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sexual perversion leads to more perversion and then to murder and then to wholesale destruction of a people. Jacob takes two wives. They hate each other. Their sons hate each other. And there's murder. Hamor, later in the story, sexually assaults one of the daughters of Jacob. There's deceit, manipulation, and mass murder in its wake. And Judah, in one of the more scarring stories in Genesis, lies with his daughter-in-law because he thinks she's a prostitute. And following that, there's accusation and there's humiliation and there's shame. Like, nothing good follows in the wake of sexual sin. And that's one of the conclusions you should step away from Genesis with. Does it make sense? All right, next slide, please. We begin begin to get a really clear explanation of how all of these passages relate together uh, in, in the words of Jesus and Paul. So let's go to the next one. This is from Jesus in Matthew 19. He says, have you not read that he created, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate or to use words that I was taught and from the King James Version, let no one tear asunder, which I like much better because it demonstrates the violence of separating the one flesh union. Does it make sense? And then we're going to read something from Paul. This is in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person commits sin against his own body. You get in both Jesus' words and in Paul's words this vision that in sexual immorality there's a perversion and a corruption of the one flesh union. Next slide, please. So what is sexual sin? Sexual sin is any act or intention that seeks sexual gratification beyond the one flesh union which is established by God in marriage. Next slide. Why does it happen? Because men and women idolize sexual gratification 
and look outside the one flesh union for sexual fulfillment. Next slide. What does it do? Sexual sin violently tears apart, corrupts, and perverts the one flesh union. It twists relationships into means of sexual pleasure. Next slide. What are its consequences? Sexual sin fosters an environment of hatred, division, and malice and establishes a pattern of perversion that can last for generations. Now, I think all of these conclusions can be reached in any of the passages that we, d- we dwelt on just a second ago. But you see this explicitly on display in the life of David. All right, so we're going to turn to our passage, and I need everybody to turn to 2 Samuel 13. Let's go to the next slide. While you're turning there, a bit of background. If you want to know more about this or explore how um, David's life in this aspect doesn't fit with the mold of God's intention, there's a sermon, uh, I don't remember when, I should have referenced, but there's a sermon with the words polygamy in it. Um, Just search Redeemer Church Polygamy. I wonder if that's going to do anything weird. (laughs) but you can go on our sermons side and like I, we basically, a couple, like last year, we, we dealt with David's polygamy in one whole sermon. It'd probably be worth circling back on. Um, but just a review, David had at least eight wives. We know he had eight wives, but there's also these ambiguous passages that say things like when he came to Jerusalem, he took on more wives. And we don't know if that's one or two or five or ten. Um, We know he had at least ten concubines, because this story will tell us. And we also know that he was recently caught in the act of adulterous murder. In other words, David doesn't just ignore the one flesh union a little bit. His sexual sin was rampant and unrestrained. And what we're going to read today are the consequences of that sexual sin. This story unfolds just after David confessed his sin and has been forgiven by God, but has been told that the consequences of his sin will change his life forever. Now, before we actually begin reading the text, let's go to the next slide. I want to look at a cast of characters because these names aren't always familiar to everybody. We've got three main characters here besides David. Amnon is David's firstborn son, and everybody suspects that he's the next king of Israel. Tamar is David's only mentioned daughter. Now, I want to say mentioned because he could have had more daughters that we don't know about. But this is the only one that the scriptures deal with. Um, And then third, Absalom is David's third son and Tamar's brother. All right, next slide. Uh, Let's read together um, from uh, from, uh, verse 1 of 2 Samuel 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And listen to these words. It seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, 
that ought to interpret the term loved. We are not talking adoration or love in any Christian sense of the term. We're talking lust. When you look at a person and you despair because they are so pure that you cannot take them and do with them what you will, that's not love. Actually, several times in this paragraph, you you get the ironic use of terms. Later on, uh, uh, Amnon's friend, who is called, actually literally, very wise. It's interpreted by the ESV rightly, I think, very crafty. But what I think is actually going on is you've got the use of the author's term of love and the use of the author's term of wise being used ironically. These guys are wicked and they have only violence in their hearts. So in Act 1 of this three-act play, if you want to refer to it in those terms, Amnon is a lot like David was last chapter. And then we're going to see this in every single scene that plays out. The, the sons of David are like David, but worse. Like David, but more perverse. Like David, but more wicked. What happens in this story is that Amnon's son convinces him to manipulate David into asking Tamar to go into his chambers. And when Tamar's there, he takes her forcefully, and he sexually assaults her, and then he sends her away. Now, Amnon is sinful, like David, who, by the way, was sitting on a couch desiring a forbidden woman. And he lures her into his room, and he takes her physically, and then he sends her away. Same progress of the narrative, except we're given details that, that are hard to read. And that are, that are terrifying to imagine. As the story unfolds, next slide please. Um, Tamar is torn apart. She rips her um, virgin's robe and she despairs and she's alone. Um, and cared for by her brother Absalom for the rest of her days. It is a sad story for her. And Absalom, the third son of David, says nothing. He's cold. He's calculated. But he wants Amnon to die. In this way, he's a lot like David. Do you remember what happened after Bathsheba? What happens to Bathsheba's husband? He, he needs him to die, right? He, he wants him to die. He has a murderous heart. He pieces together a cunning plan. And he executes the death of his enemy by the hands of another. Same thing happens with Absalom. Absalom sort of chills for a little while, a couple years. And then one day he says, I'm going to hold a feast for all the sons of David. David, you should come too. And David says, no, no, I'm I'm busy. He says, well, tell tell your son, Amnon, to come in your place. Amnon comes. In the meantime, we find that, that Absalom has secured assassins. And he said, just let, I will tell you. And when I tell you, you go and you slaughter him before his brothers. And that happens. So all of David's sons flee in terror. 
and you get the sense by by the by the narratives um, uh, uh, unfolding, you get the sense that they actually scattered in all sorts of different directions because a messenger comes to David and says, "All your sons have been killed by Absalom." And David believes them for a while, which means that they had to go the long way around to get back home. So you get this picture that, like David, was cunning and murderous in his heart toward Bathsheba's husband. Absalom is cunning and murderous in his heart. But Absalom is violent on a level that David never could even imagine. Like, sit down all of his brothers and then slaughter him. Blood must have been everywhere. It was a terrible scene. Like David, but worse. All right, next slide, please. And this, this is where the story gets interesting. Absalom flees, obviously. He's broken the law on a number of levels, and he believes that he will be killed by his father. Where does he flee? Let's look at it. Let's, uh, 1334. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him in the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voice and wept. And the king also and his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud. Amihud? Doesn't matter. King of Jeshur. So Absalom fled and went to Jeshur, and he was there for three years. Can you think of a figure that because of the wrath of a king had to flee to a pagan nation. Who? David. Right? You can't read this story and not think of David fleeing the wrath of Saul. But what's interesting here is David's actually just gone to his grandpa's house and all of a sudden you realize that the third son of David is the son of an unlawful marriage. David has taken... A pagan wife in alliance with a pagan king. And, his, and the son of that pagan union is the individual who in conspiracy overthrows the throne. Right? There's layer upon layer of covenant unfaithfulness here. And we're just getting displays of this in every scene. So Absalom flees for three years to this pagan land. And he dwells with this pagan king. Um, until finally, Joab manipulates David into welcoming Absalom back into the throne. Uh, or not into the throne, but into Israel. And then after some time, Joab manipulates uh, David into welcoming Absalom back into the kingdom. You see throughout David's failure to do justice as relates to his family. Things are just going from bad to worse because now Absalom, who is safe in Israel, has started to proclaim his name as he rides in chariots across Israel and he stands at the gate and he says, oh, if I could be your judge. And he kisses all the people who have questions for the king. He's initiating a conspiracy and he's well on his way to overthrowing David's throne. It says here that Absalom won the heart of the people. 
Listen to this in chapter 15. Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Now listen to this. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Can you think of someone else who captured the hearts of the men of Israel? But righteously. David, right? You get this inverse relationship between Absalom and David. It's like watching David's story pan out, but wicked and dark. He flees to a pagan kingdom. He comes back. He's stolen the hearts of the people. And eventually, he's, he, he, he's proclaimed king in Hebron. It's exactly what happens to Absalom. After four years, Absalom said to the king, Oh, I've got a vow I've got to fulfill in Hebron. Will you let me go? And then he takes 200 men among David's court. When he goes there, none of these men understood what was happening. But when he goes there, he proclaims himself king. And he had this whole network of people throughout Israel who simultaneously proclaim him king. And David flees because the revolution, the rebellion has led to his kingdoms crumbling. The rightful king has been overthrown. What I want you to see in these three acts is that at every stage, you see a glimpse of David's characteristics, David's personality, even David's sin in his sons. But things are worse and more wicked and more perverse. Next slide, please. The sins of David's sons are more perverse, more violent, more wicked than his own. David's sexual sin fostered an environment of hatred, division, and malice and establishes a pattern that lasted beyond Israel's exile. We see here in this trajectory, in this narrative trajectory, we see here what happens later in Kings, which is that every generation... Because of the sin of Israel's kings, every generation is more corrupt and more perverse and more wicked. Until, by the exile, the people of Israel are more corrupt and more wicked than even the pagans. And by the way, that's something that happens in this passage. Amnon's sexual assault of Tamar is very similar to a story in Genesis. Except in Genesis, Hamor, after after forcefully taking Jacob's daughter, he yearns for her in marriage. And he loves her. And he pleads with Jacob to come and make me... uh, I will do whatever it takes to make her my bride. What do you see in Amnon? Send her away. He hated... It says The text says... And I'm going to read it to you because it's horrible. Um, The text says... Uh, this is in verse 
15. Yeah. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. What do you get? You put these two stories back to back. What do you get? What Israel was supposed to be hope and glory and the, the, the shining light of God's holiness in the world. Amnon is worse than the pagan nations. You see this unfold in the sons of David and you see this unfold generation after generation and generation into the exile. All right, keep going. Next slide, please. The entire direction of David's kingdom shifts radically. And what's the pivot point? His sexual sin. It shifts from covenant faithfulness. You see this this, uh, narrative direction as David ascends the throne, as he leads the people of Israel, as he takes Jerusalem. You see this building and building towards covenant faithfulness. And then the Bathsheba narrative. And then all-out rebellion. As, as David is, is leading the people, the armies of Israel, into victory, you see this building, building, building towards kingdom peace. And for a brief moment, you experience that peace in the story. But on the pivot point of David's relationship with Bathsheba, civil dis- division, enmity between sons, murder. And here in this story, as you keep following... Absalom takes the throne and the first action he does is to forcefully and physically take David's concubines on the roof of David's house. And if you had no doubt, you see that a good king has been replaced by a wicked king. What happened to change the direction of the people of Israel? Covenant unfaithfulness, especially covenant unfaithfulness in sexual sin. Does it make sense? All right, next slide, please. Now, look, you aren't a king, and there's little chance that your sexual sin splits a nation in half. But listen, your sexual sin will be no less disastrous than David's. Here's a hard pill to swallow. It won't end with you. It will kill joy and destroy relationships, and the consequences will last for years. Next slide, please. So we need to answer the last question. How do we kill sexual sin in our lives? And this is an important question to answer. You may have victory over sexual sin, but I I promise you, you're surrounded by those who are in the midst of the fight. Our nation is plagued by sexual sin like a cancer. It is consuming us. You want to know where we'll be in 20 years? Like You can follow the tra- trajectory from 1960 to 2020. You can follow the trajectory. Go read uh, the Satyricon. It's a, it's a satire written right in the midst of Roman excess. It's a picture. We are following in the steps of every pagan culture that has worshipped sex and fallen apart. It is our way. It is the way of our nation and our people. And as believers, we must kill it in our hearts. And we must help one another kill it in theirs. The first way to kill sexual sin in your life is to count the cost. Every step towards sexual sin is a step towards wicked perversion, 
hurting families, and ruined relationships. This is what I mean. I'm not talking about the decision to go look at pornography. Sure, that works too. I'm talking about every sideways glance at that coworker who works three cubicles down. I'm talking about every conversation that you have the slightest inclination might be inappropriate, but it's fun. I'm talking about messages that you're inclined to send over Facebook. I'm talking about the decision not to load the most recent update of your Covenant Eyes software. Every step towards sexual sin ends here. It ends in ruin and broken families and hurting marriages and in limping children. My parents' family was destroyed by adultery. Um, I've been having nightmares for years. Not to say that I'm like the worst of these consequences, or much, much worse, but I don't have a week where I don't have a nightmare about my marriage falling apart by adultery. I don't. Ask Tara. Every step towards sexual sin is a step towards ruin. It's a step towards your marriage falling apart. It's a step towards your relationships being severed. If you're not married, it's a step towards viewing all of the, the, this, all of your relationships. If, it's a step towards viewing women or men as objects for your sexual gratification. It's a step towards perversion. It's a step towards molestation. It's a step towards wicked ruin. And you should see that at the front end, right? You should see it from the beginning. Count the cost means thinking about every little decision by the logical ends of that decision, by the consequential ends of that decision. Does it make sense? Okay, next slide. Know your heart. I feel pretty confident that no one in here has never once struggled with sexual sin. Be it the unrestrained imagination or adultery, right? We have this unique privilege in Christ in that we have the mind of Christ in the indwelling spirit that allows us to reflect on the state of our own soul and allows us to reflect on the state of our mind and on the state of our heart. Meditate on your own heart. Meditate on the inclinations of your heart. Dwell on why you do the things that you do. Every decision is made for a reason. And if you can trace the motivations of your heart, then you can see sexual perversion as an idol and you can plead with the Lord to crush it. Amen? Next slide, please. Uh, One of the most painful passages in the entire scriptures. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, 
We've done a whole lot of great expositional work to dismiss the force of that passage in the last hundred years. I don't know how many times I've, I've heard people say, well, I mean, Jesus surely didn't think that your right hand would ever cause you to sin. And Jesus certainly doesn't ever mean for you to cut it off. But what if, <laughs> what if the gravity of this passage was not altogether dismissed? What if Jesus actually meant that it's better to enter the kingdom handless? Look, it's true. Your right hand doesn't cause you to sin. Your right hand is a slave to your mind. But what it does communicate is that you should be willing to take radical, life-changing, socially awkward actions to cut off any opportunity to seek sexual satisfaction outside of the one flesh union. If you ever come to me and say, I'm addicted to pornography, but I can't get rid of my computer because I need it for work, you will hear me say the words, quit your job. Right? If you say, well, I can't get rid of my phone because I use it to communicate, it's almost always work. Guys, we got to get, uh, we gotta, that's so rote, we got to get rid of these excuses. But if, if you have this phone that's got a nice pleasant screen that allows you to indulge in sexual immorality and you try and convince yourself that you need it to be able to efficiently communicate with people and man sometimes people send you gifs and you got to see them sometimes I'm going to tell you I would rather you not have a phone now they make like the little ones there's actually minimalist phones that cost almost as much as an iPhone it's just a little button screen thing um, it, it is better for you to enter the kingdom iPhone-less <gasps> What? There's this... Jesus is unapologetic in his call to carry the cross. He says things like, anybody who puts their hand to the plow and turns aside is unworthy of the kingdom. And we're sitting here arguing, I'm going to lose a little bit of my income. I might get fired. And Jesus says, carry your cross, man. Wait... If his life was worth losing for the kingdom, yours isn't? Right? Take radical, life-changing, socially unusual action to cut off any opportunity to seek sexual satisfaction outside of marriage. Next slide, please. And finally, we must, we must remember the balm of comfort and peace in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I see you fighting. And I see your despair. My, one of my dearest brothers, brothers in camaraderie, not necessarily brothers in the faith, a guy I grew up with loved Jesus and he gave up on Jesus because he couldn't quit pornography. <laughs> It's terrible. You don't have to get there. We, we spent all week last night dwelling on this beautiful passage. I'm going to read it to you again. Hebrews 4. Sorry, give me a minute. Solid argument for a digital Bible, by the way.
We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Amen. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace. Amen. One day, many years from now, my daughter will realize the fullness of the gravity of choosing that name for her. Grace is the most beautiful concept. The throne of grace. Let us draw near to the conf- with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you are in Christ, do not despair. Wage war against your sin, and when you fail, turn because he's made a way for you into the throne room of grace. And receive what? Mercy. I love that that's the first thing you mentioned. Mercy. And then you can find help. But there's mercy there. His mercy is new every morning. Know your heart. Cut off your hand. And look to Jesus. And let us together crush sexual sin in our midst. That we don't have to fear all of the consequences, all of the unfolding consequences of that sin. But rather, we have to look towards an inheritance where there is never, ever again pain or hurt or perversion. Amen? Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.